You know, Christianity must be a very strange thing to many people who hear of it, especially at the very beginning when they hear of it. In Christianity, you have Jesus saying things like he did in Matthew's gospel that you studied in Sunday school not too many weeks ago, that if you come to me, you must come as a child. You must come with a childlike faith. You must come with a childlike submission. You must come with a childlike trust. I mean, you know, in reality, if you think about it, that's kind of a strange statement. He's saying you must come as a child. A child is the most vulnerable, most dependent, most trusting soul in all the, in all the world. They, they don't have a lot on, uh, going for themselves as far as independence or, or ability to do various things, but, but they come to their parent, they come to their, their mother, their father, and they say, care for me, watch after me, protect me, uh, do things for me. I mean, I mean that's, just the, that's just the nature of being a child. And, and Jesus says, if you come to me, you must come as one of these little children. Now, he doesn't mean we come and be childish. I've known a lot of Baptists that are childish and not childlike, okay? You've probably known some of those too. But this is not like any other religion in all the world. All the other religions say, listen, you need to strive and you need to work hard and you need to personally accomplish something. And you can make something of yourself in this particular religion, they would say. For instance, Buddhism says you can make yourself a Buddhist by trying harder, by meditation, by, by doing certain things that, that you change yourself. And you can make yourself a Buddhist. Islam says you can make yourself a Muslim. All you have to do is follow the five pillars of the faith. All you have to do is pray five times a day facing in the right direction toward Mecca. All you have to do is just follow these regulations, follow these rules. But Christ comes along and says, you know what? You can't save yourself. That's going to be the essence of this text today. As we look at this passage on grace found between the two passages on I am the bread that we talked about last week and how uh, Spurgeon said this was a a grace sandwich. You have two slices of bread on either side and the meat of it right in the middle, and the meat of it is grace. And that's a, that's a great analogy to what this whole chapter 6 of John's gospel really is. But what you have is you have Jesus saying in this passage, listen, grace is the optimal thing. Grace is the, the necessary thing in salvation. It's God showing his grace, and it's you becoming as a small child and trusting and believing. It's not carry out ten rules. It's not be able to do certain things and achieve a certain level by which you will then be declared, okay, you have met the minimum basic requirements, and now you can be a Christian. It's not that at all. It's all by faith. A lot of people stumble over that. A lot of people, even in our churches, struggle with that idea. That, you, you mean it's just a matter of trusting Christ? That's all it is. Well, if it's just a matter of trusting Christ, how do I know security? How do I know, how do I know the real hope of, of faith? Well, Jesus is going to deal with that in this passage. Hear the word of the Lord from John chapter 6, beginning in verse 35 and reading through verse 47. Listen to Jesus speaking. He's in this discourse on the bread of life. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. That's one of those seven I am statements that, that John centers around the discourses of this book. Understand, there are other I am passages. If you look back in, in chapter 6, verse 20, when Jesus was walking on the water and he walks out to them and they're afraid of him and he makes that statement, it is I, do not be afraid. He's really saying, I am, do not be afraid. Uh, there's an absolute statement in that, but, but the seven that he chooses, John chooses, 
to center his, his, his gospel around begins this first one in, I am the bread of life. He'll later say, I am the light of the world, and I am the door of the sheep, and I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, and I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the true vine. And all of those center around essences of his deity and essence of his sacrificial atoning work. But here he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Now, it's not just you've looked upon my person, Jesus is saying. He says, you have seen me. You have seen what I've taught. You have seen what I have said. You have heard my teachings. You have seen my miracles. All of these things. You have seen me in all my glory, and yet you still don't believe. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven, comes down out of heaven. They were saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught, they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has, has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who has come from God. He has seen the Father. Truly I say to you, truly, truly I say to you. He who believes has eternal life. What a glorious passage. What a, what a tremendous passage talking about our Lord's work in the lives of those who believe. How it is a work of grace. It is a work of God. It is a work of atonement. It is a work of, of sacrifice. It is a work of trust in Him who has done what is required to bring us to Him. It's like I've said numerous times from this pulpit as we talk about a call to worship. This corporate worship that we enter into ought to come to us and remind us that our hope is not found in what we do for God, but our hope is found only in what He has done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus is pointing us to and focusing us to in this particular passage tied in between these two passages on bread. There's a metaphorical truth here. There's a metaphor that He uses when He says, I am the bread of life. He's, he, tra he compares that with the manna, the bread in the wilderness, with the bread that they eat every day, and with himself. And he's not saying he's made out of dough and yeast and flour and anything like that. He's just saying, I am that spiritual bread that is given that you might eat of it and you may never be hungry again spiritually. I am that spiritual bread that will be, meet your deepest longing, your deepest needs, as we talked about last week. It's very, very important to understand. There are several things we can see about the people in this passage, though. 
It's important to see that Christ's lowly condition, his humiliation, his incarnation, evidently was a real stumbling block and is a real stumbling block to natural man. Do you see what they say here? Jesus says, I'm the bread that's come down out of heaven. I'm the bread that if you eat of it, you'll never hunger again. I'm the one who does the miracles, the signs that show that I'm from the Father. And if you eat of this bread, you will never, ever hunger again. And the people start grumbling. Verse 41, therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down out of heaven. Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I have come down out of heaven. Boy, that's a, that's a perplexing thing. That's a stumbling block to the natural mind. You know, they say, wait a minute, wait a minute. We know who your mother and father are. We know that you were raised in Joseph's carpenter shop. We know that you worked with your hands with your father, your earthly father, your, in reality, your stepfather, Joseph. We know that you were there. We know Mary. We see Mary all the time. She's your mother. What do you mean you've come down out of heaven? And they grumbled about it. They're just like us. They're just like anybody of natural mind. This idea of Jesus being God incarnate. Jesus being God taking on flesh and blood and dwelling and living among us is a a struggle, is is a perplexing thing to many people. It's perplexing to people you try to share the gospel with. Even in our own world, people want to say, wait a minute, I've read the stories. I've heard the storybooks. You know, I know that he was born. I know the story about the virgin birth and all that. But, you know, to our natural mind, to our scientific mind in the 21st century, that doesn't sound very likely. It's probably just a religious myth, a lot will say. I mean, he, he's, just a, he's just a great prophet. He's just a great teacher. He's just this. He's just that. All of which none does Jesus give us the option to believe. He says, I want you to understand who I am. I am the bread of life. I came down out of heaven. I'm the one that can give you real spiritual life. And they grumbled and they said, wait a minute. This is not, this is not right. This is Jesus. This is Jesus of Nazareth. This is the son of Mary and Joseph. Jesus says, I want you to understand you, you you don't believe because you're natural. You don't believe because you're in the flesh. You don't believe because you've not experienced the grace of God. You don't believe because even though you see all the miracles, you know all the great works, you, you struggle with that because you just don't have eyes to see or ears to hear or a heart to believe. Now, I realize this passage becomes very problematic to a lot of people because they want to they want, to, they want to get all caught up in, well, what if, and what about, and, and what about this person and that person and, and everything else. And, and don't do that. Here's what I want you to see. Three simple things out of this passage that are vital for us to understand. First of all, that the grace of God is necessary for salvation. Verse 44, Jesus makes clear, he said, no man, he's talking to these people who are grumbling about him, saying, no man can come to me, and that means believe in me, trust in me, have faith in me for who I am. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. The grace of God is necessary for salvation. 
We're not Islamic, we're not Buddhist, we're not Hindus, we're not all these other world religions that say, listen, if you just try hard enough, if you attain enough brownie points, if you do what you can, then you can earn right standing with God. Jesus, don't you understand? It's, it's a matter of grace. Paul made clear in Romans 3, 9, he said, listen, no, no one is righteous, no one is good, no one seeks God of their own natural initiative. They, they find the they, they find the truth of God, the being of God, to be very threatening in most cases unless they've been touched by the grace of Christ. Or, or, or Romans 8, verses uh, 7 and 8, where the apostle Paul very clearly says this. He says, listen, for the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. It's hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There's no way. I, I know what you're sitting there saying. If you're, you're not a believer, you're saying, well, I'm not hostile to the law of God. I, I'm not, I don't rise up every morning and say, I will go out and disobey the law of God with all of my strength. You don't say that. But if you're not in Christ, if you're not, if you're not experienced the grace of God in your life and you're in Christ... That's exactly what you do. So well, I don't murder people. No, but Jesus said if you hate or if you, or if you desire to seek revenge, that's the same as murder. So, you know, in your heart, you, you hate the, the law of God. Well, I don't steal. Oh, well, maybe not in an outwardly uh, overt way, but, you know, maybe a cheat on a tax here a little bit or, 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 or trying to kind of take a little bit more than, that's not really yours. You know, any number of ways that we, we legitimately in our eyes and, and, and we kind of uh, rationalize in our own eyes, it's okay to do. The, the natural mind is hostile to God, hostile to the law of God. He, he goes on in that same passage and talks about the grace of God in, in Romans chapter 8. We think about Lydia as she's sitting on the, the riverbank in Acts chapter 16 when, when Paul comes along to preach and Lydia listens to the word of God. And, and, and Luke tells us that as, as Paul preached the gospel, he says that, that God opened Lydia's eyes and opened her heart to see and believe that, that there was a work of grace in her life. And, and out of that grace, she immediately responded in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says here, I want you to understand that the coming is a consequence of the drawing. Drawing is not a consequence of the coming. In other words, God does his work and we respond. Now, we always want to ask the question, but what about them? What about somebody else? I, I remember the story in, in, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe with C.S. Lewis's story of, of Aslan and, and Lucy. And, and Lucy says, but, but tell me what's going to happen to them. Tell me what's going to happen to these others. And Aslan looks at her and says, listen, I don't tell you their story. I tell you your story. Don't, don't worry yourself with, with their story. I'm dealing with them in their own story, but I just tell you your story. It, it's, a, it's a clear thing. Jesus even had to rebuke Peter on that. You remember Peter in, in John 21? When we get to that, we'll talk about it in depth. But, but, but Peter and the disciples are there on the beach, and they've been waiting on the Lord who's risen. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, you're going to die for me. You're going you're gonna to be martyred because of your faith in me. That's, that's going to be the end to which you come. 
And what does Peter immediately do? He doesn't say, Lord, I will, worth, I will, be, I will consider it worthy uh, to, to die for you. I will consider it an honor and a privilege to die for the gospel. I'll, I'll consider it a, an honor to be martyred for the truth of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say that. Jesus says, Peter, it's going to be your lot that you will die for me and for the gospel. And Peter immediately goes over to, next to his, his friend John and pulls him close and says, well, what about him? What's going to happen to him? And Jesus said, John, Peter, what happens to him is none of your business. That's Haynes' paraphrase, but that's basically what he says. Don't worry about John. Don't worry about the others. I'm talking to you, Peter, and I want you to know what my will is and what my purpose is and what my goal is in your life. And it's that you gloriously proclaim the gospel, and then you will die for the gospel. What about them? What's their story? Jesus says, I just want you to understand your story. Or I think about the I think about the prodigal son when he came home. Do you remember the story of that? And you know, we know that he's he's in his sin, he's he's eating the food with the pigs and he's cleaning the pig stalls, and he says, You know, there's in my father's house there's 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 better, the slaves are better off than I am here. I'll go back. I won't even ask to be a son. I'm not going to go that far. I'll just go back and ask to be a servant in his house. And he starts running along, and, and, and the father sees him a far distance off, obviously watching, waiting, praying, hoping, waiting for him to come. And it says the father didn't just sit on the porch and say, okay, I'll see what he's got to say. But the father ran to him and hugged him and, and embraced him and said, my son who has long gone, you're back again. And, and he wouldn't say, well, but I, I'm not coming back as a son. I'm just, I'm just coming back as a, as a servant. And he said, oh, you're my son. Bring a robe, bring a ring, kill the fatted calf. He, he, he embraced him and he gave him, I think, the freedom to repent. I was reading uh, Paul David Tripp not long ago, and he said, you know, our, he was using the prodigal son as an example of God's grace and God's, God's smothering love and, and compassionate love, and, and he made the statement. He said, you know, a lot of times we parents are not like the prodigal son's father. We're not like the picture of God there. When our kids come to us and they've been in sin, we don't give them the freedom to repent. We want to say, oh, so that's what you did. Hmm, yeah. I knew you'd always do something like that. Puts them in a shell. But the father embraced him and said, I love you. I've always loved you. I've never stopped loving you. And that's what the father says to us in grace. grace. The grace of God is necessary. Second thing Jesus makes clear to us here is that the grace of God is lasting. In verse 37, he said, all that the father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. I've come down from heaven to do the will, not my own will, but the will of him who sent me, the will of the Father. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. We sang that song, I will rise. That's what he's talking about here. I will rise in the glory of Christ, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. The grace of God is not only necessary, the grace of God is lasting. 
That's why I wanted Todd to read that passage out of Isaiah 43 this morning that talks about the, the lasting grace of God prophesied. Where Isaiah was talking about the Son coming and doing exactly what Jesus says in this passage in John's Gospel that he does. He brings a lasting grace, a grace that never ends. He said, if you come to me and believe in me, if you come to me and, and you, you understand who I am, you believe with all your heart and, and behold the Son. That word behold just literally means to love the Son and believe in him. Then you, you're secure. You're safe. You belong to me. And if you come to me in faith, I will never cast you out. Someone says, how do, I, how do I know that God has worked a work of grace in my life? How do I know? Can I ever really know? Yes, you can. You can know if you behold the Son and believe in Him. Because the natural mind can't do that, Paul said. I desire him. I want him. I love him. I don't just want his benefits. I, just want, I don't just want heaven when I die and to avoid hell. I mean, that's a, that's a lot of the motivation a lot of people have for coming to church and, and doing various things. Oh, man, I've got to go to church today because if I don't, God may condemn me to hell, and I don't want to go to hell. That's not the essence of Christianity. The essence of Christianity is to behold the Son, to love the Son, to desire the Son, and to believe in him with all your heart, soul, and your mind. That's evidence of the work of the Spirit of God and the Spirit of grace in your life. I want Jesus. I want Him. I want to know Him. I want to know Him better. I want to experience His presence. Jesus is going to tell us later in John chapter 10 that He is the, the Good Shepherd. You know, in, in 10, 11, and 14, He says, I'm the Good Shepherd. And, and he says, of, the good, uh, of those who are mine that the Father has given me, I will lose not one sheep. It's kind of an interesting analogy that Jesus uses, shepherd and sheep. Now, first of all, sheep are about the dumbest animal on the face of the earth. You know that. So when he looks at us and says, you're my sheep, <laughs> he's not saying, boy, you were brilliant and came into the fold. He's saying, you're my sheep. And I'm your good shepherd, and, and, and I've got I've to care for you. Now, honestly, when Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, he was not saying, I am highly esteemed in the eyes of men. As a matter of fact, he was saying, I'm, I'm taking on one of the lowliest jobs that exist. There's nothing more lowly than caring for a bunch of dumb sheep. But I'm the good shepherd. And out of the shepherd fold, out of the sheep fold, the ones that are mine, I will lose not one. He gives the parable of the, 90, uh, the 99 and the one, you know, sheep. There are 99 in the fold, one is missing. And, and he says, oh, well, you know, 99%, that's a passing grade on anybody's scale. He said, no, I'm going to leave the 99 here securing the sheep fold, and I'm going to go out and find the one that has wandered away aimlessly, wandered away, dumbly wandered away, and I'm going to bring him back. I'm going to bring him back into the fold. Some say, well, if, if, if we're secure, if we're saved and we're secure, then, then isn't, that kind of a, isn't that kind of a libertarian view, well, then I'll just do anything I want to do. Well, I'll show you in a minute why it's not that. But the thing it says is we have a good shepherd. 
not just a shepherd. We have a good shepherd. We have a perfect shepherd. We have a shepherd who does not give up on us at all if we belong to him. Do you realize when Jesus says here, you know, all that the Father gives me will come to me, we always look at grace as being, you know, God's gift to us, and it is. But understand that if you're a part of his body, if you're a part of his sheepfold, if God has done the work of grace to you, you are a grace gift to Christ from the Father. You've been given to Christ by the Father for one purpose, for his glory, for his exaltation. So, so you know, he's looking here, he's really talking to people here that have, have moved into a believing relationship. He's talking here primarily to his disciples. Now, the, the Jews hear it and they grumble about it, but he's talking to his disciples. He said, listen, understand that, that you are here because of my grace. A lost person looks to Christ and they, they have a desire to come to Christ. And for some reason, you know, they, they figure, I worked this all up. I, I'm going to do the Buddhist thing. I'm going to do the Islamic thing. I'm going to do it. And yet when you're on the other side and you've come to Christ and you've been saved, you realize it was all of God's grace. It's all of God's grace. It was all of his work. It was all of the good shepherd bringing his sheep into the fold. And it's eternal. Of all that he gives me, I will not cast one out. Boy, is that not a... Is that not a securing statement? If you believe in him and behold the Son and you've trusted in him, Jesus says, I'm not going to throw you out. Matter of fact, it's really a negative way of saying, all that come to me, I will welcome, I will bring them in, I will, I will protect them, I will guard them, they will be my people, and I will be their God forever. The grace of God is necessary and the grace of God is lasting dare I say even everlasting and finally this the grace of God is liberating it's liberating it takes away the, the whole concept of works and and guilt and 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 defeat and it sets us free not in a libertarianism I'm not talking politics now I'm talking spiritual matters, theological matters. Not in a libertarianism that says, hey, I've got the grace of God. I've put my faith in Christ. I've walked an aisle. I've been baptized. I've done all the right things. And now I can go live like I want to because he owes it to me. It's not that at all. It's liberating. We stop living out of fear and we live out of gratitude. You know, I, I, don't, I wish I had a dollar for everybody, every time somebody said to me, but if I believed in the, in the eternal security of the believer, then, then I, I have to believe that, that you just can, that, that that'll lead people into sinful living. If I had a dollar for every time somebody said that to me, I'd be a wealthy man. I'd retire. I wouldn't take my salary. I'd just preach because I love preaching, not for my livelihood. It's a total misunderstanding of the gospel. It's a total misunderstanding of grace. Because that's living out of fear. That's living out of, if I don't do this, then God is going to zap me, or God is going to not like me, or God is going to push me out. He said, listen, I'm not going to push you out if you belong to me, if you have true faith in me. The gospel is to be lived out not because of fear. It's to be lived out because of gratitude. 
This work of grace has changed my heart. This work of grace has opened my eyes. This work of grace has given me new life. This work of grace is saying, listen, I've been taught of the Father. I'm not like those Jews who grumbled and who who just like the Jews in the wilderness, by the way, grumbling against Moses. They grumbled about manna bread. Here they're grumbling about the bread of life that comes down, both come down out of heaven from the Father. But I I don't grumble because I know that his His love secures me. I know that His love protects me. Peter said that in 1 Peter. He said, if if you're in Christ, then you are guarded by the power of God. You are protected by the power of God. The power that spoke everything into existence that said, let there be light, and there was light that said, separate the waters from the earth, and they were separated, that, that, that created man and created animals, and created plants, created everything there is. The power that created everything that is in existence, the power that, that raised the dead in Lazarus' case, and the power that raised Jesus from the dead, and the power that saw him ascend into heaven to rule at the right hand of the Father for all time, that same power, Peter says, is the power that keeps you. You are kept. You are protected. You are guarded by the power of God. You are cared for by the great shepherd. The great shepherd, the one who loves you so much that if you should wander away, if you should stumble, if you should fall somehow and, 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 and end up in a sin, which we all will do, He's a loving shepherd who comes out and picks us up and takes us back to the sheepfold. He's the one who loves us enough that he lets us experience some pain to remind us that we are not our own and that we can't take care of ourselves. But we are absolutely like a little child dependent on him. Dependent on him. Every other religion says you've got to learn, you've got to grow, you've got to achieve, you've got to attain. Christianity says you've got to come like a little child. You've got to come and behold the Savior. Love the Savior. Believe in the Savior. And he will change your heart. He will change your life. He will give you new life. That's why when I see someone that's not in Christ, I don't say, oh, are you, are you being drawn by the Father or are you given by the Father to the Son? That's not the question. That's a ludicrous question to them. My question is, do you, do you desire Christ? Do you see that He's the Savior and do you desire Him? Do you want him? Well, if you do, that's indicative that the Spirit of God is at work in your life because the Scripture is clear. No one desires God unless God is at work in them. And and I just say, do you want to come to Christ? They say, yes, I want to come to Christ. I say, well, let me tell you what it means to come to Christ. Share with them the gospel message from Genesis to Revelation. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You shall be saved. What does that mean? You'll never be cast out. 
you'll be welcomed by the Son. You'll be welcomed by the Savior. You'll never, ever, ever be cast out. You say, well, what if I sin? Don't put an if there. What about when I sin? Does that make my sin okay? No. But it doesn't break the fellowship. It doesn't break the relationship with the Father or with the Son. Well, what about my sin? Well, your, your sin will be dealt with by the Spirit. Your sin will be dealt with by the Savior. Your sin will, there'll be conviction and you'll know it's sin. And His grace will so overpower you and so fill you that you will repent. You will confess to the Father. See, there's no excuse for a believer. There's no excuse for a believer just to say, well, I'm, I'm just that way. You know, it's just the way I am. I'm just going to keep on sinning and keep on sinning. If that's the excuse, it may be indicative that you've been very religious, but you're trying to be a, a Christian like you would be a Muslim or like you'd be a Buddhist. Not coming the only way you can as a child. Vulnerable, weak, dependent, and submitting to Him who is a great and mighty Savior, to Him who is the bread of life, to Him that will feed you with Himself. Next Sunday we'll look at that more of the allegory of the bread, and we're going to actually come to the Lord's table next Sunday morning because they tie in together in that passage. Let me ask you one simple question. This is all. It's not hard. It's not like a final exam question. It's very simple. Maybe it's twofold. Do you want Christ? Not escape from hell. Not a, not a home with gold and pearls and whatever else. Do you just want Christ? And you want Him now. Jesus said, He who believes in me has eternal life. Not will get it one day, but has it right now. Do you want Christ? Are you willing to submit to Him in repentance? Are you willing to come to Him as a child, vulnerable, weak, helpless, needy? And say, I confess that you are Lord. And I believe in my heart that God raised you from the dead, and I trust you. Do you want Christ? Are you willing to behold him and trust him? That's what he says in this passage. And the one who wants him and beholds him and trusts him, he says, is his. I will never cast him out. And that is a broad, broad truth. Covers the face of the globe. All who come to me. All who come to me. I will welcome. All who desire me, I will welcome and bring them in 
and secure them by my grace and by my power. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the great I am. You are the one who is the bread of life. You are the one who fills our spiritual hunger when we try to fill it in so many other ways. Lord, we have sung this morning about your grace and your mercy. We have sung about your Spirit's power to bring us to Christ. Lord, I cannot help but believe that there's someone here that has a desire for Christ but has never trusted Him. You're working in His heart, her heart. You're, you're calling, you're, you're leading, and you're drawing. And Father, this would be the day that they would say, I come as a child. I come as a child. I come believing. Father, I pray you do your work. I thank you, Lord, for Katie and her testimony to that this morning. That she has put her trust in you, depending on you and you alone. Father, I thank you for the truth that baptism demonstrates. Death, burial, resurrection with you. Be a part of your sheepfold. Be a part of your family. To know your grace, not just for salvation, but for daily living. Thank you, Father. Father, do your work in our lives. As we sing this great hymn, A Debtor to Mercy Alone, I pray, Lord, you will show us that our indebtedness is to your mercy and your grace. We pray in Jesus' name.